0: Let me tell you what we're going to do. All right, Um, I'm going to read out of Romans six. I'm going to start in verse fifteen and go to the end of the chapter. After I do that, I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'm going to talk about the police, not law enforcement, but the band from the seventies and (laughs) eighties. Then I'm going to walk through the passage, and then I'm going to conclude by confessing to you that I'm a legalist. All right, so. There's all those things going on this morning, and I want you to hang with me, um, because this is one of the most um, beautiful and challenging um, passages in all of Romans, and Paul means for us to peer deeply into it. And so, um, I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get on with the rest of the outline. Here's how, here's how it goes, beginning in verse 15 of Romans chapter 6. Paul writes, what then... Are we to to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you could do this morning, that you would take these words that you inspired Paul to write, this, this very word from you that's, that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and that it would have its way with us it would accomplish its will in us father that it would not return void and so we ask that expectantly of what you'll do in the name of your son jesus amen well, one of the things um i do you know, as many of you know i take my daughter uh Catherine, to breakfast on thursday mornings and um One of the things we do, one of our favorite conversations is music, particularly 70s and 80s um, rock and pop music. It's part of my discipleship with her. And, uh, but so this last Thursday morning, one of the things I really wanted to do was make sure that she knew about the Police's Synchronicity album 1983. I think it's the best album that they did. You probably didn't know you were coming to get that kind of education, but it is. And so, what's fascinating about it, so we and we like to talk about we don't like to just listen to the songs we like to talk about the artists we like to talk about why they wrote these songs what do these words mean you know as they're groping out into the world you know and um, synchronicity is this fascinating album Sting wrote it in the midst of a divorce it was one that broke his heart it was um, so he leaves he goes to Jamaica he hides out in Jamaica for a little while and he ends up writing this the, most of the songs on this album and. Um, he is searching and struggling with all these things that are going on in him that he can't seem to make sense of. And one of the songs that he writes in this really sort of sums up the whole mood of the album, and it's, it's the song, King of Pain. And it was number one, January 17th, 1984, if you wanted to know. But anyways, that, that single got released off of that album. And it, was, it kind of summed up, and so they, there was a lot of interviews at the time with Sting about, hey, what's going on in the song? Because there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of sort of darkness and sadness, and Sting began to talk about this, and depending on which interview you read, um, you know, what Sting's motive was behind it, I think they all were. I think he, he, he fully didn't understand what he was writing, and so, it, listen, I, I don't, no evidence that Sting is a believer, but yet he writes things that are biblical, about the state of humanity. Listen to the words. I'll just give you one verse, and then I'll I'll let you hear what the bridge is. It says, there's a little black spot on the sun today. And then there's this like echo that's built into the song where he says, that's my soul up there. It's the same old thing as yesterday. That's my soul up there. Well, there's a black hat caught in a high tree top. That's my soul up there. There's a flagpole rag and the wind won't stop. That's my soul up there. And then he says, I've stood here before in the pouring rain with the world turning circles, running around my brain. I guess I'm always hoping that you'll end this rain. But it's my destiny to be the king of pain. And he's personifying this thing that has this reign over him. And as he thinks about the king of pain, he writes this bridge, and this bridge is fascinating, and he's probably referring to two sort of Greek mythology kings. And he says this, there's a king a uh, king on a throne with his eyes torn out. There's a blind man looking for a shadow of a doubt. And then he gives us another king. There's a rich man sleeping in a golden bed. There's a skeleton choking on a crust of bread. Fifteen images of pain in this song. Those two kings he's probably talking about, King Oedipus and King Midas, both Greek mythology. King Oedipus, he's a slave to destiny. He had made a a journey to see the oracle at Delphi and was told that he would, you know, it's all mythology, but it's recorded, you know, that he was going to, Um, end up killing his father and and marrying his mother. And he was so horrified by that that he did everything in his life to keep it from happening. And yet, after a series of events, he realizes that the actions he's taking have actually accomplished that thing which he was trying to avoid. And so he ends up tearing his eyes out because he doesn't want to look upon it. And his death is that the earth swallows him up the king who could have had anything was a slave to his destiny. The other one's probably King Midas that he's referring to, who, you know, he goes and meets Thas, and this, the, 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 the god of, of wine and the forest, and helps him find a servant that had been lost. And so, as a reward, he says, What reward would you like? And he said, Well, I'd like for everything I touched to turn to gold, which was really awesome until he got hungry and needed to eat. And the feast that would be set before him, he would, you know, touch it, it would turn to gold. And and in fact, it's recorded um, that he says, you know, it's recorded about him, swelled at first with pride. When he found he could transform everything, he touched to gold. But when he beheld his food grow rigid and his drink harden into golden ice, then he understood that this gift Was bane and loathsome. One is a king of his, uh, a slave to his destiny. The other is a slave to his desire. And we could give example after example after example, and you put the slave to, and then you fill in the blank. And so that's what Paul is wanting us to see this morning. He's going to show us listen, we, whether we know it or not, want to admit it or not, want to acknowledge this truth, we are slaves to something. And in 21st century America, we really want to go, no, 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 we're free, we are independent. And the reality is, no, you're not. You're a slave to, you're a servant to your desires. Your heritage, your DNA, you are a servant to something, that which you are seeking security in or significance from, and that every single one of us knows what it is to be in slavery, to something. And so what Paul says, he's been trying to say in Romans 6, listen, you've been saved by God. He's been saying this, you've been saved by God. It is a free gift of God. What you could not do, God sent his son Jesus to do. And based upon what Jesus has done, God turns and says, okay, I'm going to count what my son did. I'm going to count that towards you. That when I look at you, I'm going to see my son when I evaluate you, I'm going to evaluate you based upon myself. And what his life was and is, your life now was and is. And that's salvation. That's justification. And it is this right standing, this righteousness that comes upon us. It's given to us externally. It's placed upon us. Now what Paul's talking about in Romans 6 is, how does that now get worked out in your life? How does that which is... Come upon you externally. What happens to you now that you've been changed? You've been made, the Bible says, a new creation. You've been made new because of that. So how does that work itself out? And so what he's been saying is, listen, you know, think about it this way. You were once in this domain of darkness. Under the command of sin and the rule and the reign of the prince of the power of the air. That's how you were born. That was your natural state. Now, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness and death and sin. Now you are in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. Jesus reigns. And this domain, this reign, this ruler has no power over you anymore. He has no authority over you. And so, you are not under its power. You're not under its penalty. You're in a new domain with a new king. And he also wants us to know, listen, the presence in this life, you know, this is an already, but not yet. We're working it out. The the presence of sin is still there. The old patterns of sin are still there. But it doesn't have power over you. has no authority over you. Its penalty is not yours anymore. So then how do we live this reality out in our life? And so what Paul's been saying is, listen, you're made new by the free gift of God's grace, and then there are people that would say back, well, so Paul, you're saying, okay, so we're not under the penalty of sin anymore. Uh, we're not under the power of sin. We're not under the law. Because we know the law doesn't really produce Obedience. I mean, we can accord to the law, but it doesn't make us lovers of God. We're not under the law anymore. And so they're saying to Paul, "Hey, listen. So you're saying we're not under the law? So do, so can we just do anything we want? I mean, we we make the rules now." And so Paul says, "By no means." Which in the Greek, literally translated, "You're an idiot." That you, you couldn't be further from misunderstanding what it is I'm saying. And yet, when you, when you preach the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, when, when, when you hear how radical grace is, it's always open to that misunderstanding. And yet, Paul, not, not trying to uh, uh, avoid the misunderstanding, he is wanting to confront the misunderstanding. And so, he says, by no means a thousand times no. The suggestion that God's grace grants you a license to sin, that's absurd. You're not in that domain anymore. You're not under that ruler anymore. You're, You're not under the power of that master anymore. You're in a new domain with a new master. It'd be illogical. For the force that frees you from the power and penalty of sin, to be the force that energizes you for sin. Listen, being free doesn't mean you don't have a master. Being free is worked out in who is your master. That's what Paul's trying to say. And there's only two masters, either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And see, what he's going to argue is that the grace that God proclaims in the gospel, the, the grace that God provides through his son, Jesus, that creates a love for God, which the law could never produce. There's the, the law cannot legislate your heart to love. That can only come about through grace. Grace. And so he says in, in verse 16, look, look at this. He says, do you not know? Which means, of course you know. It's the whole point Paul's making. Of course you do. And he says that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey. There's three words here. To present is to place yourself at the disposal of. And the, the idea in the, in the first century, what Paul's referring to, is how slavery works. So, slavery worked two ways. One, you'd conquer your enemy, you would, you would take their slaves. But the other way, more, um, more likely what Paul means, is there was a, an indentured servitude. And so, if you were in debt to somebody, you had a you had huge debt, or you um, had bad years and you couldn't feed your family, or you, know, you, 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 know, you, you were needing to survive, you could go and you could offer yourself as someone's slave they would turn around and pay off your debt, and then you were theirs. For however long they deemed it took for you to pay off what it is that they had Hey, you, you, you worked this back, but you would, you would present yourself, you would place yourself at the disposal of, and to obey, you would embrace with full surrender whatever it is they told you. You give your ear to them. They speak, you do. That was the obedience. And, and the slave, it, it, it was um, to be under the complete control of someone else. You no longer had a say in what you did. you were under the complete submission and control of someone else. And so he says that you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves. Your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. That's what that leads to. Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Righteousness is what you were created for. Righteousness is what you long for. You might even say godliness, holiness, purity. That's how Paul's using it here. The last half, we either obey sin or we, he says it in a real funny way, obey obedience. What does he mean by that? Well, there's a sense in which I think obedience is sort of the relational way that legal righteousness is worked out. When you're declared righteous, that is a legal declaration. God is declaring something about you. Your obedience is is now your life coming into sync with what has been declared legally about you. Obedience is relational. Righteousness is the legal standing. But he wants us to know, listen, everybody's a slave to something or to someone. Everybody's offering themselves to someone or to something. We offer ourselves as sacrifices on some altar Everybody does it. Rebecca Manley Pippert said it this way. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. What controls you? Being accepted, being significant, being seen, being known. Being viewed in a certain way, having certain stuff, living in a certain place, being a part of a certain group, what is it that controls you? Sin's slaves, the slaves of sin, they're bound. And what binds you is guilt and fear and misery. God's slaves, God's servants are free to do what our new nature loves. So, let me illustrate this. So, obedience is this weird word. We hate the word obedience. Everything in us, we hear obedience and we rebel like, you know, we're the fourth grade child that has to obey our teacher that, you know, some of you were really good at it. You earned a lot of strokes by obeying your teacher and there were others that you've lived in this constant battle with it. But obey is not one of the, every time I marry a couple, you know, it's like they, somebody will usually say, not every time, I, you know, but somebody usually brings up, hey, listen in the vows. You're not going to say, like, love, honor, and obey, are you? I'm like, no, no, I'll use submit wholly. <laughs> but let me give you a picture of obedience that I think is more helpful for us. We're not going to turn there, but if you did, if you you wanted to, you can make a note. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, there is a story there that is familiar to you. Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. Jesus is asleep on the boat with his disciples. His disciples, most of them, are skilled fishermen. The text says a great storm pops up. And yet these experienced fishermen, they run, they wake Jesus up, and they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. So it's a bad storm. It's a great storm. So what happens is Jesus gets up, rubs his eyes, rebukes the wind and the wave, and the text says there was great calm. From great storm to great calm. And then verse 27 The text says this, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And obedience there was the from great storm to great calm. That's what obedience produced. Here's an interesting note. The very next scene in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that Jesus, they get to the shore and they are immediately met by a demon-possessed man. He is called, we find out his name in Luke, is Legion. And so they go from great storm on the water to a great storm in this man's spirit. And Jesus will only say one word in that account. And it's when he looks at the demons and he says, go. And they depart from the man. Luke tells us that when Jesus meets this man, he was naked, homeless, living in the tombs. Mark describes him as out of control, unable to be subdued, even breaking free from the chains that he'd been bound in. And night and day, Mark tells us, he cries out. and He cuts himself with stones. And this man goes from utter chaos and agony to listen how Luke describes it. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, with one word go. That's obedience. It's this perfect picture. God's righteousness made us die to sin new and righteous life has been infused into us and now righteousness rules us and reigns us Paul is in verse 8 we've become slaves to righteousness and with that comes a great calm a peace we've longed for it is simply not true that christians free though you are from the law as a means of salvation are under no obligation to God. Why wouldn't you want to be under obligation to God? Verse 17, but thanks be to God. See, this transformation, this one that you experience as a believer, this sanctification, this progress of becoming who you are already in Christ It is all from God. It is not something that you do. It is something God is doing in you. It says that you were slaves of sin. You know, that's your origin. That's how you were born. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sin and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the world. That's how you came into the world. But now you have become obedient from the heart, he says. And what this means is that the gospel truth comes. It penetrates your heart. In fact, it, it actually gives you a new heart because you're made new. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe that, assenting to some intellectual truth. It is a heart change that happens in you. So this new obedience comes like from deep within you because you have a new heart and you're indwelt with a new power. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. In fact, you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 30. This was the hope, not just that we'd have something to obey, but that God would give us new hearts with which to obey him so that we weren't just following a law, but we were pursuing our joy. That's what he means. You're obedient from the heart, doing what it is now that you long for. And notice, obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, I'll break this down for you for a second. This standard, this word standard is, is, a, is the word, you can define it as, as mark or as form or pattern or model. Maybe your translation has one of those. But the idea is, the custom was when you became a slave to somebody, they would put this distinctive mark on you, this brand on you, this, you know, this form on. They would mold this into you, and it would be right. People said you belonged to a, you know, so-and-so's mark. That's how you would be spoken of. Belonging to the mark. But notice this: the mark that you now belong to, the, the standard to which you now um, have been committed to, that this doctrine, this teaching of Christ is now the distinguishing mark in your life. Now notice, it doesn't say this doctrine, this teaching has been handed to you, has been committed to you. You know what it says? You've been committed to the teaching. God's taken your life, fashioned it, and then poured, molded his truth into you. You're not like the rabbis. You know, say, we we, we have mastery over God's law. No, no, no. As Christians, we're created by God's Word, and we're sustained by God's Word. That's a key in our sanctification. It's a key to what it means to grow in Christ, to become who we already are in Him. All right, verse 19, slavery is an analogy. Simply, when Paul says I'm speaking in human terms, what he's saying is, you have limits, I have limits. We're speaking about things that human words can't actually fully articulate. You know, it's a good illustration. It's a good analogy. We can't make it an allegory. We can't go too far on it. Slavery to God is the greatest freedom a human can ever know. So when we're talking about slavery, I just want you to know, I realize that that metaphor falls short a little bit because slavery to God is the greatest freedom you can know. And he tells us why. Look at verse he goes on, you, you once presented yourself as members of slaves to impurity that leads to lawlessness, greater lawlessness, but now you present yourself slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So, so it's this sin brings us into this ever-increasing deterioration. And it, and it comes because the things that we're serving... The things we've presented ourselves to, we end up working out those things or those people's wills in our lives and in our bodies. Offering our bodies leads to this lawlessness, he says. Offering ourselves leads to this lawlessness, lawlessness, anarchy, rebellion, insurgence, chaos. Lawlessness is living as though your ideas are superior to God's. God may demand it, but I don't prefer it. God may promise it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with, with my desires. I become a law to myself. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in, in the Mere Christianity. He envisions what this this verse, how it carries itself out. He says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. And he takes it to be true. He says, now there are a good many reasons which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years but which I had better better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradual that the increase in 70 years will hardly be noticed. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. Slavery to God works in the same way. Offering yourselves to righteousness leads to holiness, leads to godliness, acting according to the truth, living out what is really true. He says it leads to sanctification, this holiness, this purity. It's both a state of being and a process Sanctification is being set apart, a person or a thing, for what it was intended by its designer. Think about it this way. A pen is sanctified when it's used to write. Eyeglasses are sanctified when they're used to improve vision. A human being is sanctified when you now live according to what God's design and what His purpose is. Think about Adam and Eve. They were perfectly, they perfectly bore the Creator's image. They lived in harmony with His purpose and with what God designed them to do, and they had limitless communion with Him and unbounded intimacy with each other. Never were they so free than when they were, as Paul would say, slaves to Righteousness. When we serve righteousness, we all, not only do we please God, we, we do what's best for us because that's how God created the universe to work. But we exchange truth for a lie. Went outside of our design to meet our needs. So Paul says in 20 and 21, why would you go back there? Why would you go back to this dominion Don't you remember the fruit that that bore? It only brought you shame, and it leads to death. So instead, he says, listen, but now, verse 22, moves us from the past life to the present life. The more we believe God's facts about our eternal Position in Christ before him, the more that truth then works itself out in our life. And he ends with verse 23 for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we usually use that in in evangelism context, but the reality is it's it's written to believers. Sin is a master that always pays, always pays on time, and always pays in full, and what it pays is death. And sin pays out what we deserve for our work with it. We earn judgment by our works, but justification, life, come only by faith, and are a gift from God. The pivot word is gift. God absolutely refuses to sell salvation. He will not barter for it. It's like trying to buy, Spurgeon says, trying to buy light from the sun or air from the atmosphere. All a man can do is take it and to use it. That's how God has given salvation to, to take, to use, and to be used to enjoy life to the fullest. Serving Him. Does not win us salvation, but it does put us in sync with who we are as new creation. Now, here's how I want to end. One of the greatest dangers for us is that we will hear a passage like chapter, like Romans chapter six. You're a slave to God. Don't be a slave to sin. And somehow you hear what is good and right and holy. And you will leave here and respond with your flesh. What? not going to sin then. I'm going to set up these parameters. I'm going to do all that I can. I'm going to work really hard. And and, and I want to say that what Paul does not do is he does not respond to these accusations of license with legalism. But we are so prone to respond with legalism. Well, what's legalism? I would honestly have to say that I probably have had for a long time a legalistic view of legalism. I used to say, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just a bunch of killjoys for the sake of trying to set themselves apart from others. And the real sad thing is they just don't know the true freedom in Christ that I have. Here's the problem with that definition, while it is probably true in many respects, where it is not broad and encompassing enough is that that definition doesn't include me. I am a legalist. See, legalism is any attempt to improve upon the holiness that comes only from God. I'll explain it this way. It's like going to the Four Seasons Car Wash. You go there, you have them do the whole thing. They, they, they vacuum it and out. They wash it. They wax it. They do your tires. They clean everything. You know, the guy at the end's even got the rag, and he's, you know, working out all the smudges, and then you get in the car. You drive to the end of the lot. You get out of the car, and you proclaim, look what I did. That's legalism. It comes from not rightly seeing how we're related to God. He's the Savior. He saved us by His supreme and holy grace, and nothing apart from that grace. We are not the subjects of grace, we take no part in affecting it. We are only and forever the loved and treasured objects of God's grace. We are made holy by Him, through Him, in Him, because of Him. There is nothing, absolutely nothing we can do to increase or decrease our worth in His eyes. And to think, imagine, or act any differently is to engage in legalism. Two fundamental errors of legalism. One, I think we engage, we are so prone to engage in legalism when we are entrenched in sin. Legalism is trying to get to God through the actions and efforts of our own self. Listen, if we believed we're in Christ and new creation, the old self is crucified, uh, you know, no longer alive, and that we're alive only because of the resurrection of Jesus and our identification with that resurrection, you know, Paul said, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Legalism's blatant pride in the face of God It in essence says I don't need you God To get to you I'll find my own way Here's the second root error Of legalism We engage in it to meet our own needs Now listen to what I mean so contrasted with letting Christ meet our needs, instead of going to God for all that we need and, and seeing, you know, the, the contrast is what we do is we see ourselves as sufficient enough to meet our own needs or we don't believe really that God is sufficient enough to meet our needs or some combination of both. And so what happens is we, we set, we make rules and restrictions you know, disciplines for ourselves and for others you know for the purpose of attaining a you know a sense of being spiritual when we do that we've engaged in legalism we've sought to meet our own need for security and significance in Christ apart from Christ To, to, by what we do, s- secure our significance in Christ, we're doing it apart from Christ. And we do it in the name of Christ. And what's worse is we impose our own sinful pathology on others. Legalism is weighty. It's, it's a burden. I, I believe it leads to a lot of depression, Amongst believers, a lot of, you know, giving up the good fight of faith. I also believe that when you begin down the road of legalism, you will be doomed to that journey until you realize your place, your security, your significance in christ christians mistake the life that christ promised in john 10 10 that you will have life and have it abundantly they mistake that for self-managed self-attained self-sacrificing life of legalism and somehow i think it's the church that sold it to you i got two minutes but four minutes worth of stuff I have always struggled with Ephesians 1.4. This is what it says. Just as He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He goes on to say, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, he's lavished his grace on us. See, the part of that verse that's so difficult for me to understand is he's talking about what's already been accomplished. And in fact, it's been accomplished before the foundation of the world. I so often live as though I'm, it's up to me to accomplish it. Or at the very minimum, that the, the Lord's still, you know, at work in his uncomplete work in me, or I viewed my redemption, my forgiveness, my the gift of grace as as goals to attain through my servitude and self-sacrifice and just plain old hard work. I mistakenly felt as though I need to prove myself acceptable and worthy in his sight. Not realizing. My acceptability, my worthiness comes directly from Him and through Him by His grace. It happened before time began. And the truth is, you will run yourself ragged pursuing something you already have in Christ. And what's worse, you'll do it in a way that puts you at odds with the God who saved you. Legalism, it's been the sin in my life for a long time. I've always known it was there. I mean, something thwarting my relationship with God, I haven't always known what to call it. When we engage in legalism, we try to meet all our own needs and attain a desired holiness all on our own. We ignore God's word. We turn from Him in attempting to forge our own path to Him. I know that doesn't apply to any of you, right? It's just me. Our life, in a sense, becomes a miserable, depressing attempt to build a Tower of Babel. We step back from it. We see how absurd it is. But in the middle of it, you know, we focus on it. We call it the pursuit of excellence. Yet we've set out to create our own structure. And we do it in the name of the Lord. And we think we're doing acts of worship, you know, towards God. What we're really doing is worshiping ourselves. Here's the primary distinction, and I'll wrap up. It's the primary distinction between true discipline. So, sort of this obedience that Paul says, obedience from the heart in a believer's life... And legalism, the primary distinction between those, and I would say it this way, it comes only from the perspective in which it is viewed and which it is pursued. See, there's no list of activity, you know, activities, no list, you know, can assemble to distinguish between legalism and, and spiritual discipline or obedience. They look a lot the same. The distinction's in two areas. One, how is the Holy Spirit of God leading you? What is he leading you to do? Listen, you've got to ask and answer that question. The question's answered by consulting scripture and study and prayer and and, and confidants, your small group. And if the Spirit is leading you to an obedience, to a discipline, you know what you need to do? You need to go as hard and as fast as you can and go humbly and go prayerfully. Remaining sensitive to what God wants to do in your life through the discipline. I think it would be an error to say God is not calling you to an obedience, that he's not calling you to spiritual discipline, that he's not calling you to pursue your greater understanding and devotion of what it means to be in Christ. The history of the church proves that out. But we've got to be sensitive to when and how. God's calling us and leading us and we follow him in that area. Here's the second area. We, you know, what's the Spirit leading you to? Secondly, what's the attitude that I undertake in going about this action? If it elicits pride, or somehow you feel like you're gaining favor in God's sight, or you're, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, you, you know, you're involving yourself, you know, to, to accomplish what God's doing, then that's legalism. Those motives are not pure. Our response to God should be out of obedience and love to the perfect, complete work that He's accomplished in our life. We don't engage in it for the purpose of attaining any sort of worthiness or acceptance. We already have it. See, see if pride creeps in... we begin to look at ourselves and feel prideful, then we know we have turned away from God with the very thing we were using to get His attention. But here's the reality. Spiritual discipline, obedience, it it is for the purpose of God getting us to pay attention to Him, not us getting God to pay attention to us. It is not a ladder to climb. You do not achieve holiness. You simply walk in what has already been created to you, following the new heart and desire and disposition that God has set in you, syncing up with who He is and what He has for you. And that is the greatest freedom you'll ever no if you would would you bow with me let's pray father you have been gracious